Uh, my role this evening is just to really warmly uh, welcome you here to uh, Peter May's book launch. It's the first time I've ever done a welcome to a book launch. And I guess it's the first time, Peter, that you also have done your own book launch. The, the last time, did you say? <laughs> the, first, the first and the last. The first time. I have to admit, I mean, how can I do a welcome and, and then admit that I've not actually read the book yet? But I thought one came to a book launch to be persuaded to buy the book and then to read it. So I'm going to see what you say, Peter, and yeah. then maybe I'll Thank hand you. my money over. <laughs> it's really good to be here and lovely to have such a wonderful turnout. Uh, just to say a few thank yous, uh, particularly to Christchurch for this wonderful hospitality. Thank you so much for uh, providing this. We're, you know, I haven't eaten half of those canapes, but I think there are a lot more out there. And just for the warm welcome, so thank you all very much. And I was delighted to hear how both Peter and Keith have been involved in coming to speak to the student groups here at Christchurch. So it really feels like a joint kind of Christchurch and Highfield uh, event. So uh, it's good to be here together uh, this evening. Um, I'm really looking forward to hearing about uh, your book, Peter. Um, at Highfield Church, and I think I speak on behalf of us all, we so value Peter's passion for the gospel and for his scholarly and rigorous approach to unpacking the Bible. And if that approach uh, is unfolded in this book, then I will be buying it. And I will be reading it. <laughs> and I've got a child who's a student, so maybe I'll get a second copy. Oh. The two pounds, I get. <laughs> anyway, it's just for me to say welcome. Um, I'm going to hand over to Keith, uh, Keith Fox in a moment, who's going to facilitate the evening. Keith is a member at Highfield Church. Uh, he's a good friend of Peter. They run Reasonable Faith together, um, where um, those difficult questions, apologetic questions, are asked and attempted to be answered, and I think they do quite well at that, amongst other things. But uh, uh, first of all, I'm going to hand over to Anne. Malcolm. Malcolm. <laughs> We were introduced just now. <laughs> Welcome, Andy. Anyway, you're the publisher. You're quite an important person. So uh, please, uh, um, Malcolm, come and uh, take the microphone and give us the notices. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Erica. Well, it's a joy to be here. Um, my daughter was at Southampton Uni a few years ago, and uh, it's great to come back and um, meet Peter for the first time this evening. Um, the publishing company that uh, I run, I only actually set up about a year ago, so Peter is actually um, one of our first authors. Who, who we, it's an absolute privilege to, to publish his book. Um, I've got Nick Pollard to thank for making the connection. Uh, Nick and I worked together when I was at Authentic for, for many years and were involved in a number of different projects together. So thank you, Nick, publicly for... Uh, passing on the information and um, also I'd just like to say I'm not going to say very much but just to say that um, if you do end up buying a copy of the book tonight which I'm sure you will because they're at such a fantastic price over there much cheaper than the internet um, it would be great if you could post a review um, on Amazon now the reason I say that is I'm not a great fan of Amazon I have to say but it does make a difference in terms of the overall publicity in the way that the, the book gets out there generally because um, shops like Waterstones 
um, take note of the Amazon chart. So the higher we can get it up in the charts, the, the more chance of a wider distribution. And obviously, we want a book like this to be on every high street store. We don't just want it to be sold online. So if you could post a review, hopefully a good review, uh, that would be even better, which I'm sure it will be for a, for a book like this. So um, without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Keith uh, for the rest of the evening. <laughs> And Peter, of course. <laughs> you were going to say something about tweeting. And tweeting, yes. The more social media tweeting, <laughs> posting on Facebook, anything like that you can do, the better. So uh, get, get your hashtags, the search for God, or just search for God would be the one to use. Well, thank you, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here this evening. And uh, to, to, to my role, really, is just to facilitate to get Peter talking. So I might as well... I'll, 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 I'll vacate this chair now, shall I? It's not a difficult task. Um, some of you will know Peter fairly recently. Some will remember him as a GP in Southampton. Um, some of you, I know he's a father and husband, etc. Um, I go back with Peter a very long time, time ago. I first met Peter when I was a student, um, when he was assigned to my college, Jesus College in Cambridge, as our assistant missioner uh, working for the, for the UCCF. And I think we saw some of these ideas put into practice to actually great effect uh, during that John Stott mission there. So this is not just a theory, this is something that's been worked out over many years. And I get the feeling as I read this that some of these things have been thought about for a long time, Peter. Is this has been a long time in gestation, this book? Oh, I mean, the Jesus College Mission, I think, is this the song? The Jesus College Mission was 76, Otherwise. so we first met in 75, and as I recall it, and we haven't talked about this probably since, but you, you put on a house party for the students in your college, and I think you got five to come to the house party. Yeah, that's a good number. <laughs> this is a college of what was then 300 blokes. I imagine it's changed both number and variety. Since 150 blokes now, 150 women. Yes. And um, so we just had a weekend of looking at the issues, very much the issues that underlie this book. And um, these five guys, they really bought the packet. And so they went back and planned their mission week. And they organised lunch, tea and supper dialogues consecutively for five days, and I've never been so near to a mental breakdown. <laughs> I really, I really did push myself to the limit. My mind was just racing. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't settle. But each one lasted two hours. Some of them perhaps stopped after one hour. They, they, they brought into the different groups. So we had the geographers, and we had the mathematicians, and we had the scientists, and. We had the hockey players uh, and the rugby lot, and then we had just a, one a general sports evening, wasn't it? And uh, what was that lovely old room? Was it the Prioress's prior room? Prioress's room. Prioress's yes. room, and they, they got a crate of beer and they put it in the middle of the floor. Uh, everyone sat around in a circle, and when they wanted another beer, just got up and got it. And we must have gone on for about two and a half hours. And at the end of the week, I was exhausted. There was something else going on, quite important at that time. John Stott was giving the main talks in the <laughs> university. And so some of them would come for a dialogue. Others would also have gone to hear John Stott. But it meant at the end of the week, some, as I recall, 100 students had been through as a third of the college. And so I went off home and sought psychotherapy. <laughs> but, 
Over the next six months, they just trickled into the kingdom, didn't they? And you see, the same thing happened when I was at medical school. We started with a group of five, and within 18 months, I think our group had grown to 50. And I think you had a similar sort of similar sort of growth there. So these ideas have been worked out in what in community. This is the joy of this. But and this is why it's so easy to do it in a college, and it isn't easy to do it in the wider community. Because when somebody was converted in the college, everyone got to know about it, and they'll talk about it. That person's really changed. They're smiling. They're happy. Yeah. So in terms of the book, what, what, what's his take-home message? It's something to do with persuasion uh, and explaining the Christian message. Aren't there plenty of other Christian books out there that do that sort of thing? Well, what, uh, the making of books, there is no end, There's isn't there? No and, and quite a lot do are very persuasive. John <coughs> Lennox's books are marvellous in that regard, and there are Oz Guinness and lots of other people who have written on this subject. But... An awful lot of books and an awful lot of thinking about evangelism is fundamentally deficient in the persuasive corner. And you know, for 10 years I suffered the Church of England's Board of Mission. <laughs> and they said lots of good things, lots of good things um, about telling the gospel and getting alongside people and all the rest of it. Persuasion never came into it. And as far as I can see, they're just losing the fundamental ingredient, which is there in the New Testament, and it, they've overlooked it for a softer option. And so the fundamental theme of the book is that if you're to do evangelism properly, you, you're, you're conveying information, you're telling people stuff they didn't know. Um, sorry, swap. Um, you, you're, you're conveying information, you're telling people things they didn't know at all. You're also explaining things that they don't understand. And for most people, evangelism stops there. But the apostles, it didn't stop there. They then went on uh, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God, a phrase used of Paul uh, in, in Ephesus. But this idea of persuasion, it's repeatedly there. You've, you've not only got to tell them the truth, make sure they understand the truth, You've got to persuade them that it is true. Because they're not going to change fundamentally the direction of their lives unless they really do believe this is for real. And so that's the, that, I think, is the, the, the missing factor. And I haven't read very much that really tries to explain that. And actually, it's, there, there's some tedious stuff in the book. Because trying to understand what knowledge is and what persuasion is uh, and uh, what's actually involved here. Well, and what proof is. So there are some things that have to be tackled in trying to describe it, but those are key themes which I think are important. You talk earlier on in the book of your, your experience as a young Christian going to various Christian evangelistic events, and I think the phrase you use comparing that to what's in the New Testament, this was not quite that. So do you want to expand a little bit? Well, because I go back a long way into the last century. I became a Christian about six weeks before Billy Graham arrived for the Earl's Court Crusade of 1966. So I was scooped up in the Christian group that I had got into, and we all went along to Billy. And I don't want to say anything negative about Billy, uh, because Billy was wonderful, and what he did in this country was wonderful, and one just has to respect it. And of course, however much you criticise what he did, 
he had the ultimate put down, which I think he borrowed from uh, D.L. Moody. Is I prefer the way I do it to the way you don't. <laughs> and there's no answer to that one. He was doing it and making the gospel a talking point, not only across Britain, but yeah. across the world. But I mean, he came repeatedly uh, to major crusades in Britain. But, you know, he was in his strange rut uh, of massed choirs, of um, George Bevshay. He wouldn't preach unless George had sung beforehand. This was fundamental. Um, it was all six foot above contradiction. And his basic argument was, but the Bible says. So he'd quote Nietzsche. He would talk about other views. But then the authority was the Bible. And of course, when you're talking to Christian people, um, and even then, there are a lot more people who would give a nodding assent to the Bible as a book. But, but, but if that's where you're at with your evangelism, people, why should I believe the Bible? And what is the Bible? You believe in Manoah. You're, you're talking about all the problems and Jonah and Wales and, uh, and all this sort of stuff before you ever get around to talking about Christ. And the apostles, and this is one of the, the key themes in the book, is that the early church didn't have a Bible. Okay, they were talking to the Jews and they had the Old Testament. But when they were talking to the Gentiles, they had what they had remembered about Jesus. And those who had met Jesus or learned his stories or had grasped his sayings, they would talk about Jesus as best they could. But they had no authoritative book to talk about. It wasn't a circular argument. It was a linear one. From historical events, the person of Christ, and the grounds for trusting in Christ. And so I think that's a fundamental argument which um, we have to think through deeply about. It, it is much easier to just say, well, the, the book says. So what? I've got another book. It says something else. We have to do that. You rather amusingly at some point point out that there are only two types of evangelism persuasive evangelism and unpersuasive evangelism. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the unpersuasive evangelism, very briefly, because we don't want to be too negative? Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, uh, there's no point in unpersuasive evangelism. And that's the sort of take home message of the book, really. Um, and I run through, I think, about a dozen types <coughs> of unpersuasive evangelism. There's lots of it about. I've been to more conferences on unpersuasive evangelism than you know, I want to talk about. Um, so I've just listed different types of things where the church has bought into something which is deeply unpersuasive in itself. Doesn't It just stops short of doing the job. But isn't this whole persuasion thing, this argument rather for, 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 for intellectuals and academics and the, the likes of you, um, don't, don't, don't most people just believe uh, and, and take it like that? Highly educated academic scientists, but are most people open to persuasion? Well, I think this is where dialogue comes in. Uh, it, th this word dialogue is hidden in the New Testament because it's usually translated as reason. He reasoned with people. But actually the, the Greek word there implies that he was in dialogue. And when you start talking to an individual about the gospel, you first of all understand how ignorant he is about it, and then you come across the things he doesn't understand and is thoroughly confused about, so you address his ignorance and you address his understanding by explaining. Uh, but then you pick up his doubts, 
Now, the intriguing thing about the doubts is that the intellectual and the simple man with no further education ask the same questions. Why do you believe in God? Why does God allow suffering? Is Christ the only way to God? They'll use exactly the same words, but they want different levels of answer. And if you're in dialogue, you adjust your dial of your <laughs> dialogue uh, to tune into where this question is coming from. And some people want very <coughs> simple, basic answers to their questions. Others want very tedious and involved PhD-style answers. And this is one of the reasons why Paul says you go to the Jews, you go to the Jews, and Greeks to the Greeks, uh, and you can extrapolate that, that students to students. Um, fashion designers to fashion designers. You're much more likely to get onto the wavelength of your peer group than you will if you're trying to uh, cross the barrier and talk to somebody from a very different intellectual world and social climate. So dialogue is the key, but, but the, the questions at that individual's level are there for everyone. At some stage, you unpack a little bit in the book the, the, the argument that says all we're called, called to do is to preach the gospel, to know nothing but Christ and Christ crucified, and it's our job just to preach the gospel. So it, it, isn't this a diversion? Well, this is uh, the, 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 there's a whole big issue underlying this, uh, and that is what happened at Corinth. Um, because Paul, addressing the intellectuals at Athens, then went to Corinth, and says some very strange things there. He didn't come with persuasive words. And, you know, hold on, what is he saying here? He wasn't trying to be wise and, and all the rest of it. Um, and that, I think, has confused a great many people. So many people have argued that Paul regretted Athens uh, and that he had a much more simple, basic, more spiritual approach when he went to Corinth. But if you read Acts through, you read Paul at Thessalonica, Paul at Athens, Paul at Corinth, Paul at Ephesus, hold on, he's doing exactly the same thing in every situation. He goes to the synagogue, he argues and reasons and persuades, uh, he goes on to the marketplace. In all these situations, he, there's no suggestion that he changed his style. So something else is going on in Corinth, and that's worried me all down the years until I met Bruce Winter. And, until, sorry, until I met Bruce Winter. And uh, there are family connections in the room with Bruce Winter. But Bruce was uh, the director of the Tyndale um, UCCF's research units when I was chairman of UCCF. And he gave me his book on Philo and Paul with the sophists which was not light reading, um, but it was quite clear to me that he has put his finger on the button of what was going on here. And so I've got a whole chapter trying to put in a popular way uh, and simplify the issues. But it's quite an amusing story, apart from anything else. Uh, and I was quite pleased with the chapter, and I wrote it very much dependent. My research is were undergirded by Bruce's stuff, and I went on and discovered a few other things that he had missed, which I was quite pleased about. <laughs> they weren't important things that he missed, but they were just nice illustrations of the subject, uh, not least from L Lucian of Samosata, who was a wonderfully cynical guy, who described the sophist philosophers that Paul was dealing with. And um, 
So I, I, I finished the chapter, but I hadn't discussed it with Bruce. I hadn't seen Bruce for 10 years. And uh, he'd gone back to Australia. I didn't have an email for him. And um, I was all ready to send the stuff off to, to Malcolm. So I thought, oh, this is, I, I turned my computer off at midnight. And I went to bed and I was just thoroughly agitated about it. I really shouldn't have written this chapter without Bruce seeing it. Uh, and if I tried to get in touch with him now, I would, you, I would delay the whole process for weeks. So I said my prayers and I asked for forgiveness and I kicked myself <laughs> and I went to sleep. One o'clock in the morning. 9.30 that morning, my wife will bear witness this is no lie. Mm -hmm. Phone rings. Hi, Peter, Bruce here. <laughs> Can you meet me in half an hour at the end of your road at Costas? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Bruce. <laughs> yeah, I've got something for you to read. <laughs> Which was quite a remarkable accompanying sign, really. And Bruce was thrilled with that, so he gave me a good mugshot of him and <laughs> put it into the book. Um, to have his blessing on that work, because it is his work. He's the one who's beavered away at this as to why Corinth. What was something very specific was going on in Corinth, and he's exposed it for what it is. Yeah. Thank you. And as you encourage us to sort of think about how we're going to put the gospel across ourselves, explain what the Christian faith is, um, and talk people through things, you use a phrase in there which I don't think is yours, but it's very powerful, called re rehearsed spontaneity. <laughs> can, can you, that, that sort of oxymoron, can you the, the, help There must us? be some people, well I know there are some people here who remember Chapo. How many Chapo fans are here? Yes, there's a little cluster of them. <laughs> Nick and I worked with him um, a lot in the 1980s. And um, Chapo was full of one-liners that were great. And he used to say, the reason you don't talk to people about the gospel is that God knows you'd only muck it up. <laughs> he said, and his, his answer to that was rehearse spontaneity. He said, I've got the most evangelised cat in Australia. <laughs> I'm always evangelising the cat. I'm think, working out how to say this. Uh, and the cat just sits there looking, uh, listening intently. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that's right. I think when you're, you, you need, when you're lying in the bath or whatever, to just mull over. If somebody says to me, can you just explain the Christian gospel to me? Because some of us have great difficulty knowing, hold on, where do I start? And what order do I put things in? And where do I finish up? And what's really important to include? And what is peripheral and could be left to one side? And assuming that I haven't got three hours to do this, I've got two or three minutes, can I actually make a coherent case for Christ? With a guy on the bus or the train or whatever in a few minutes. So... Um, there's lots of chapoisms in the book. Uh, you'll be pleased to see Nick. <laughs> and, and your five points in the chapoism? God, man, God, what if you do, what if you don't? <laughs> Read the book to find out. <laughs> it starts at the right place. And it puts the things in the right order. That we believe in God. There's something about man and man's plight. We need to address that. And then you talk about God revealing himself in Christ and going to the cross for our forgiveness. 
and you've got to respond. What if you do and what if you don't? You can do it the other way around if you like. I think it's better to talk about the positive thing first and then say there's a flip side to this. You're cut off from the God who made you and you're going to be accountable to him. So, I mean, that can be said in a few seconds. God, man, God, whatever, whatever. You can unpack it into five one-hour lectures if you want. But it, it, depending on your train ride, you can judge it, you can judge it accordingly. But I think it's, it's just a, a simple chapo structure. It's, it's, it's really helpful, as those, those five. And you just say you can do ten seconds on each one and you're done. And it doesn't require a napkin. You've got to write things down and draw, do drawings on. Which was <laughs> <laughs> a... Another common approach. <laughs> and, and as you go further on in the chapters in that book, you start talking about things like Pompeii and Seneca and Rome and one to Peter. Why, why is that in there? What's that got to do with explaining the gospel? I got an email this week from an old friend who said, I just read your book and I like the autobiographical stuff in it, but I also like the whodunit stuff. The last three chapters, there are a few whodunits. And um, the answers are a bit speculative. But um, I think the issues are there to be argued, and I think they're persuasive. For instance, uh, the, the Apostle Peter, the more you get into the book of Acts, the more you just have to respect Luke as a writer. He doesn't give throwaway lines. And again and again, you get to a sentence, and you just think, what's he, what's he saying here? And what he says about Peter is, Peter is arrested by Herod um, and miraculously escapes. And he goes to the home of John Mark, or, or John Mark's mother. That's significant. That's the relationship. That's his first port of call. And, and there was a big crowd there. There were lots of people praying for his release. So this was obviously a big home and it's an important home and was a centre and he leaves a message uh, uh, at the door, said, tell him I'm out. And Luke says, and he went to another place. Full stop, end of discussion about Peter. We don't hear anything more about him for five years. Now, he goes to another place. That obviously is outside, at least, assume that's outside Herod's jurisdiction. And it's a specific place. He's not moving from town to town and village to village. Herod was out to try and get him. He wasn't on the run in that moving around. He went somewhere very specifically when Luke decides for some reason or other he doesn't say where that was. So I've teased that out. And it's, it'll either float or it won't. But I was rather pleased, having done it, and being found this very compelling scene opening up, I then delighted to find that John Wenham has made this whole scheme in 1976. And so I emailed Bruce and said, Bruce, do you know, has there been any real evidence put forward to sink Wenham's theory? He said, all the years that he was at Tyndale, um, he said, I've never heard it discussed. Hmm. So, um, yeah, that's uh, one of the whodunits. So read the book and find out a bit more. <laughs> yes. Fascinating who, who done it. Uh, Peter, I think we're getting close to the end of our time for right. conversation. What, what do you think, what do you hope that this book's going to achieve? I hope it, I mean the church is floundering nationally with, with our evangelism. We are substantially failing to do the job. Our churches are all being reduced in size 
And, um, and yet when we do get opportunities, people are just as easily won to Christ. So we've got to really ask some hard questions about what we're doing and how we do it. So I'm hoping it's going to help focus the mind. And if I'm right about persuasion being central, persuading people about the truth, then we've got to see what's involved in that and take it on at all levels. And every spokesman for Christ must just tell people that Jesus is the saviour of the world. We need to give them a reason why we think he is. And that can be a personal reason, what's happened in my life. It can be an objective reason at Easter about the empty tomb. It can be a philosophical reason. It's a lovely um, quote that I managed to get from Matthew Paris, who, you know, in his atheism, he says there's something in our bones that tells us that there's more to life than what, what there appears to be. Um, we've got to give reasons. We've got to tap into the yearning and the searching people have. So I'm hoping it will focus evangelism. I'm hoping it will help student evangelism, but not just student, because the principles I say is the same for educated and for uneducated. At their own level, each person needs to be persuaded that it's true. And I hope the honest seeker, and I've heard already of one or two who have picked it up, uh, it's not really written directly for them, but they found that the honest seeker, I think, can find this an opportunity to have a good look at what Christianity is about. And um, I'd like to believe anyway that that will be an audience out there. So when you've read it, you want to pass it on. Pass on to somebody who is just prepared to investigate it for themselves. If they're not honest seekers, they'll never find God. We've told that very clearly. If you seek, you find it. <clears throat> Thank you. I think maybe you and I have dialogued enough for the moment. Um, there's a chance for anybody else to come back and throw some questions at Peter, throw the right ones at him, and he'll tell you the exact contents of the book, then you don't need to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we've got just a few moments. Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to, to, to throw something out at Peter based on his uh, years of experience of practicing uh, the, this sort of persuasive evangelism or some of the, um, some of the things he's mentioned this evening. Over to anybody here really comment about cross-cultural evangelism, say that in a strongly Muslim area, the experience of coping. Well, of course, this is the importance of Paul at Athens. And, um, you know, Paul wasn't invited to Athens. He wasn't, they, they, they weren't inquirers. They weren't saying, if only we could get somebody to come tell us about the Christian faith. Um, he went along and said, look, you guys, you, you, you have missed fundamental clues to what this world is about. And he dips into their culture, their literature, their thinking, and takes them to Christ. And we know he took them to Christ because some people were converted. An important woman called Damaris, who had a lot of implications down the track in history. Um, for some people, anyway. The, 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 the Dionysius, apparently... There's reference that he became the first bishop of Athens. You know, it, people were converted there. But Paul was an extraordinary guy who was educated in the Greek philosophies uh, and thinking and was able to do that. I mean, we found that very difficult to do. But if we are going to go into another culture, we've got to try and understand the thought forms of that culture. And got to do the work. And that's why there are no simple solutions to this business of evangelism. 
We do need to be reading our newspapers and watching what's going on in the media and trying to understand the world we're living in the whole time if we're to say things that are sensible in, in that public arena. So, um, and in the Muslim area, you know, I could go and give a talk to, 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 to Muslims. It wouldn't be terribly good. I don't know an awful lot about it. Um, there are some people who can do that very well. And we all need to develop specialist interests. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you. Alan. Alan. <clears throat> I've got a little way into the book, and so I've picked up uh, what your misgivings were at the time about uh, the Billy Graham crusade in, in 66. And I've seen a few references to, to Chapo. Um, so I wondered, uh, it may come later in the book, but I haven't found any references to the late Ford crusade that you were involved with in 84. Yeah. And I wondered where that fitted into persuasive evangelism. Yeah. I liked Leighton enormously. And he actually wrote a book, I've got it on my shelf, called Christian Persuaders. And I remember buying it at the time and being very disappointed that he doesn't tackle really what persuasion's about. So he was very persuasive, naturally, in, in many ways. He was an intelligent man, he was well-read, and he was very thoughtful, and it was a great mission. But I don't think he had really gripped the issues of persuasion. We had a thousand people sitting outside the marquee one night. They were so successful that we filled a 5,000-seater tent every night for a week. Nick hasn't recovered. <laughs> it did also give lots of other opportunities for engaging and talking. I remember you almost killed yourself for a month before the thing, going out, doing uh, dialogue in all sorts of places. Yeah, in six forms. Yeah, six yes. forms, universities, yeah. schools, all over the place. Nick and Carol teed up these six form groups, yeah. and, uh, <laughs> and sometimes so it was that. a double slot, and one kind of saw 80 minutes with the kids. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think you did two a day. Yes. Well, we worked it as hard as we could. Yeah. Thank you, Nick. I've forgotten that. Thank you. Any other question? I'd like to Jasmine. Thank you. Um, you mentioned how um, there's the problem that anyone who's not a Christian wouldn't take the Bible's authority. Is there a way that we can use the Bible well in evangelism without just saying the Bible says? Um, but we must deal with the New Testament as historical documents and defend them as historical documents. And we need to have some idea of the process that led to them being formed, and so that we can say with confidence that this is, you know, it's, and we can make, you know, general statements. Jesus generally taught this. We're not going to be challenged about many, much of the nitty-gritty things. Um, many of the highly, the sayings are highly memorable. The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Rhythmic sentences. Lay out for yourself treasure on earth. Well, the, if you lay up treasure on earth, moth and rust corrupt, thieves break in and steal. But lay up treasure in heaven, moth and rust do not corrupt, thieves will not break in and steal. But where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Jesus taught so that people remembered his sayings. Uh, and, and that's true in the parables, they're often rhythmic in concise verses, and enormous economy of words. So, you know we've got to take people back to the historical data about Jesus, which is there in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts. Um, Thanks, over the years, why, why have you been so interested in students? Thank you, yes, that's a good question. Um, in my first year as a medical student, 
I went to the IVF National Conference and there were 300 students from all over Britain gathered and it just seemed to me this must be the most fruitful mission field in the world. You can't better this. And I've never, no one's ever persuaded me out of it. It has to be that these are the most educated and able people who are going to have the maximum opportunity to take the gospel abroad and to take it into industry and to take it into politics and to take it into journalism and all the rest of it. So these are going to inevitably going to be the movers and shakers. So I think we should put student work, absolute priority, but not to the neglect of other people. Everyone needs the gospel. But in terms of strategy, it's a no-brainer. Thank you. I think at that stage we've worked you quite hard. Um, we'll give you a few moments to relax. Can, can we thank Peter for... Thank you for coming. I'm very grateful. Am I going to hand over to Orlando to do the final bit of hard sell persuade you to buy the book? You haven't been persuaded already. Well, thanks so much. What a privilege it's been just to uh, be listening in on this conversation and learning from your great wisdom and your reflections um, over these years. Uh, my job is to close out and to encourage everybody to eat, drink, and be merry and buy many books. Uh, there is, I, I should say, there are lots of things to eat and lots of things to drink, um, and I'm sure there are many books to uh, to buy as well. I'm just looking at piles over there. Uh, I'm, I would imagine that we could probably persuade Peter to sign a book uh, before he's done. Uh, the value of a medic's signature is perhaps not probably writing Mickey Mouse or something like that. Um, but we take to take his word for it at least. Um, but I thought before um, we completely close, I thought it might just be worth me um, uh, just giving a couple of reflections, having actually read the book. <laughs> and, it, and just to say why it's such a delight, Peter, to commend it to those who are here this evening. Um, I, uh, uh, I serve a church, a local church here in Southampton. Uh, and the church where I serve is quite, a, is quite a young church, so we're still at that stage where we're trying to work out what we're about, what our ambitions are, what our priorities um, want to be, and such things. And one of the verses in the New Testament we keep on coming back to is uh, some verses from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, where he's giving something of his aspiration for the church in Philippi. Uh, we have this picture towards the end of that chapter of uh, Paul virtually waiting by his telephone or by his letterbox or in front of his screen watching his inbox, longing to hear news of the Philippian Christians. And he's very specific about the news he wants to hear from them. He's got a very clear plan of what he wants to hear. And, and that is he wants to hear that they're standing firm in one spirit striving as one for the faith of the gospel without being afraid. And those were the verses that came to mind as I read this book. I don't think it's a verse that you quote. I'm not going to be told off if it is. I didn't spot it. But it was a verse that um, I was drawn to in my mind as I read this because I found myself thinking that if people I know, if Christians around this country actually took on board some of the material of this book, 
we would be many steps further along the line to seeing Paul's aspiration for our churches realised. And I thought I might just tell you why uh, I thought that. That aspiration of Paul, uh, you could boil it down to three separate things. He, he, he was longing that the Philippian Christians would be standing firm in the one spirit, striving as one. Striving's a, um, it's a, it's an army word, isn't it? It's a military word, it's a fighting word. Uh, I've never been in the army. You've been in the army? No. no. Uh, I, unless you count a brief career as a cadet. That really counts, does it? <laughs> but I imagine if you're there on the front line, uh, that you would take great encouragement from knowing that there are people around you who had your back. People around who actually you were linking arms with and were facing this foe together. Um, if the person on my right had been, if I'd known that they'd spent some time scoping out the weak points of the enemy, and the person on my left spent some time uh, trying to work out strategies for approaching the fight, or whatever it was, I would feel much encouraged, but I'd feel more than that. I'd actually feel equipped for this fight. I'd feel in a better place to be more effective in this particular fight. And I guess as uh, Christian believers, we need each other. We need each other uh, to stand on each other's shoulders. And I felt that actually, um, as I read this, I was standing on your shoulders, uh, and therefore being one little tiny expression of that unity, of that striving together side by side. So it was one thing, I thought. Um, but it goes on, doesn't it? Striving, uh, uh, striving as one for the faith of the gospel. I guess every Christian believer is part of a church, and every church is a community. But they're not just a community of, of being. We're not just called to, to be. We're called to believe. We're people of a message, a message that's been passed down to us, that we've responded to ourselves, and that we now, in order to be linked in that chain, now pass on to others. Um, and it... Uh, occurred to me that if we were to, to improve in that, if we were to be better servants of that message, then we need one to uh, well, to know the message and, and, and two to communicate the message. I think the best book on knowing the message is Chapo's book uh, Knowing Told the Gospel which actually you summarise some of it here which is quite, quite useful, so it's all in here. <laughs> Uh, I had the privilege to working with Chapo. I had a, I, for a year. I had this extraordinary job. I was a sort of substitute evangelist for Chapo. So the conversation would go, "Hello, uh, can Chapo come and preach at our mission?" Well, no. But there's this funny pobby bloke who's barely out of nappies. He, he'd come along. Pause. <laughs> you sure Chapo's not available? <laughs> that was my job to go and be that person for Chapo for, for a year. It was a, a real delight, and I. I uh, really show a great deal of respect for him, as obviously you do too. Knowing the gospel, but actually, in terms of a book um, that is written in an English accent, shall we say, um, that encourages me to articulate the gospel persuasively, clearly, faithfully, effectively, winsomely, persuasively. I don't think I could think of a better book um, than this one that I've just read here. So I'd really love to commend the book uh, from that point of view too. So strive as one for the faith of the gospel without being afraid.
We are very afraid, aren't we, at the moment? Barely uh, a week goes by without uh, emails zinging into my inbox telling me of some new liberty that Christians have lost or some fight that some individual Christian has lost in some way. We're afraid to speak. We're cowed. Uh, I think we are quite worried about where we're going. Um, and what I love about this book is that it encouraged me to be on the front foot, to get back into the fight, to be proactive, to take initiatives, and to fight for the gospel in the context that I'm in. And I could see it having the same effect on many other people um, around the country and beyond, I hope. There are some of the reasons, I think, uh, that this will be a good thing to pick up and get that illegible scroll on as well uh, before the evening's out.